Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Return to Sri Lanka, Travels in a Paradoxical Island, the latest book by Professor Razin Sali, describes the country with the following words. There are shelf loads of recent books about bigger and better known countries, not least on Sri Lanka's giant northern neighbor. But little Sri Lanka hardly pops up on the world's radar screen. When it does, it presents a fractional, distorted view. Bombs going off one day, ethnic riots another day, alleged war crimes. On more peaceful days, it yields tourist images of paradise. Return to Sri Lanka is part memoir, part history, part travelogue. As Professor Shali returns to Sri Lanka in the aftermath of the Civil War to experience its history, culture, politics, and people. Razin Sali is a Sri Lankan British writer and academic. He taught at the London School of Economics, where he also received his PhD. He founded a think tank in Brussels and is now an associate professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. Today, I'll ask Razin to talk about his life in Sri Lanka and his return to the island. We'll talk about Sri Lanka's post-independence history and how it shaped the sights and society Fisher Sally saw on his visit. We'll also talk about why he decided to write a travel book rather than a dense non-fiction work of economic analysis and politics. So, Razin, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Perhaps it's best to start with the, say, the star of your book, um, the country of Sri Lanka. What makes it so fascinating as a place to study, to visit, and to experience? Hello, Nicholas, uh, and thank you very much for uh, uh, for uh, uh, doing this uh, this podcast on my on my book. Um, uh, of course, my answer to your question, as someone who's grown up in Sri Lanka, is incredibly uh, subjective. Um, I suppose for the for the outsider who might come to Sri Lanka for the first time, uh, it has immediate tourist charm. Uh, people tend to be very friendly, warm, and welcoming. Uh, it's a lush tropical island uh, with incredible variety. Uh, so I, I think that's the that's the immediate sensory, uh, even sensual experience of Sri Lanka. Uh, now there are plenty of places like that around the world. Uh, what makes Sri Lanka special to me? and to foreigners who've come and fallen in love with it, is that it's endlessly fascinating in its complexity. It's a relatively small island, about the size of Ireland, um, with a population of about 20 million. Um, But in that island, one finds not only incredible uh, topographical variety. Uh, the tea country, uh, coastlines with wonderful beaches, uh, scrub in the north, um, a wet zone, a dry zone, um, but also an incredible variety and mix of, uh, of cultures, of ethnicities, of languages, of religions, of dress and food. Um, and all these differences are within short driving distances of of, of each other. Um, uh, 
And given that that complexity, there are also lots of lots of problems, lots of divisions. Uh, many people find it difficult to imagine how such a relatively small place can be so incredibly complicated. But Sri Lanka is one of those places. So I think, Nicholas, that's how I would sum it up. Uh, one might start with all that tourist charm of, say, going to Sri Lanka on a on a tropical holiday, but uh, just scratching the surface, uh, one uncovers all that all that fascinating complexity um, and endless variety. I'd like to get into um, the history involved in your book, um, but first in first in terms of the history of Sri Lanka itself, you know, kind of post independence, um, and then I think after that we can talk about. Uh, your own personal history in, in Sri Lanka, your your childhood, your time growing up in the country. But again, let's let's start with the with the national politics first. Um, what what's Sri Lanka's post independence history like? Um, uh, uh, I think just to put it in in context, um, because it does influence post independence history. Uh, Sri Lanka or Ceylon, as it was known until. Uh, 1972, uh, had uh, 450 years of Western colonization, probably more than any other uh, country or region in Asia. 150 years under the Portuguese, 150 years under the Dutch, and then 150 years under the British, all of which have flowed into uh, Ceylon, Sri Lanka's post-independence, uh, culture, society, politics, and so on. Um, Ceylon got independence from the British in 1948, uh, just six months after India and Pakistan got independence. Uh, Ceylon, by the way, was ruled separately from British India. It was never actually part of British India. Um, it was a very peaceful transition from, as uh, many people put it at the time, the, uh, the white man from uh, Oxford handing on the baton to the brown man from Cambridge, the brown sahibs of the day, uh, quite unlike the violence of partition in India and what became Pakistan. Um, the, the early history of independent Ceylon was relatively peaceful. Um, that lasted about a decade. Uh, and from, from the mid-1950s, uh, there was a crucial election in 1956 and then ethnic riots in 1958. Um, ethnic divisions uh, that were always under the surface, uh, with the British keeping a sort of lid on them, um, burst to the surface uh, between Sinhalese and Christians and then more particularly, more virulently between Sinhalese Buddhists and Tamil Hindus. That erupted into a civil war in 1983, which lasted 25, 26 years. The war ended in 2009. There was incredible violence during that quarter century. Politics was very turbulent, uh, very partisan. Uh, there was a significant left-wing lurch from the mid-1950s. 
which lasted until the late 1970s. And that mirrored what was happening elsewhere in South Asia, taking the lead from India in particular. Uh, relations with the West soured during that time. Uh, and then, as I said, from, the, from 1983 to 2009, there was, uh, there was a civil war. Uh, and uh, I started going back uh, regularly right towards the end of the civil war and have really been rediscovering Sri Lanka in the decade subsequently. Um, uh, but that, that supported post-independence history of Sri Lanka at least up until the end of the civil war. Uh, we've seen some changes uh, since the end of the Civil War, but perhaps we could talk about that later. Well, I think this is a good segue to talk about your own personal history in Sri Lanka. I mean, you the book talks about your childhood there, you're growing up there, then you go um, overseas uh, as the politics of the country changes. And then, forgive me if I'm, if I'm encouraging this incorrectly, but then you, you kind of stop thinking about the country until after the Civil War. So maybe could you kind of quickly share for us the trajectory of your life in relation to uh, Sri Lanka. Sure. Um, well, uh, to begin with, uh, uh, as I describe myself in the book, I'm half-half. Uh, my father is from the Sri Lankan Muslim community. Uh, the Muslims uh, are about 10% of the island's population. They form a distinctive minority with an age-old history that goes back to uh, Arab traders riding the monsoon winds, uh, stopping off in uh, the island that the Arabs call Serendim, uh, probably starting in pre-Islamic times. Um, my mother is British uh, from Wales. Uh, my parents met on a ship. My mother came to get married uh, uh, and live in Sri Lanka in 1961. Um, my brothers and I were born uh, there, and I'm, I'm the eldest, so I spent the longest time growing up there. Uh, so um, the Ceylon and then later Sri Lanka I knew as a child was very much that of the, the late 1960s, and my memories are very hazy of that time because I was born in 1965, and then particularly the 1970s. So when I think back, uh, as I do extensively in the book, to my childhood Sri Lanka, uh, it's very much the 1970s I have in mind, uh, prefigured by the way my parents, particularly my mother, experienced Ceylon in the 1960s. Um, so in the 1970s, um, I had a relatively privileged upbringing. Uh, my father ran the Mount Lavinia Hotel, which... Uh, was one of Asia's legendary colonial hotels. Uh, um, uh, one gets a sense of it in the film Bridge on the River Kwai, where several uh, scenes, the hospital scenes, uh, were filmed at the hotel in the 1950s. My uncle owned the hotel for six, seven years. Uh, my father ran it during that period. Um, I was very much part of Colombo Muslim society. I had a wide extended family of uncles, aunts, cousins. We were in and out of each other's houses all the time. Uh, we celebrated the religious festivals. 
Uh, I went to school in Colombo and in, in the suburb of Mount Lavinia, uh, near the hotel uh, at the time. And then I, I think what particularly marked my Sri Lankan childhood was it was a time of political turbulence, not just for the country, but also very immediately, uh, viscerally, for our family. Um, my father was at the receiving end of um, the then government's campaign against business people who had supported the opposition in the previous election. Uh, there were draconian foreign exchange via, uh, restrictions. He got caught up in that. Uh, there was a long court case. He was in remand, first under under uh, first in remand, and then he was actually in jail for a couple of years uh, before uh, the 1977 election changed the government, and he and others who were caught up with these foreign exchange issues were were pardoned, and then he was released. So I, you know, I discovered politics not in the abstract sense, but in a, in a real concrete sense in probably in, in uh, early, mid-1971 when the CID raided our house and took my father away. And um, uh, so th that's, if you like, the meeting point between uh, what was a, a very turbulent period in Sri Lankan politics, uh, very partisan. Uh, there was a very big left-wing lurch at the time. Uh, there was rationing, there were bread queues, uh, ethnic strife was on the boil. Uh, the rebellion in the north began in a small way in the mid-1970s. So all of that was happening as the backdrop to what was happening in the immediate family with my father in jail, with my mother and my brothers and I, spending one year in the UK, one year back in Sri Lanka, with constant crises on our minds. And then, obviously, you, you, you then return to uh, Sri Lanka to write, well, you, and then yeah, you, you return to Sri Lanka, and then you start to write this book. Um, and maybe this is a good chance to kind of segue into, um, I think, much of the meat of your book, which is uh, your travels around Sri Lanka to its, um, through the South, through Colombo, through Kandy, and even through the through the Northeast in the aftermath of the Civil War. Could you tell us about how these different parts of Sri Lanka differ from each other and some of the and some of the sites you saw on your on your travels? Um, yes indeed. Um, I, I think I mean I, with hindsight I saw relatively little of Sri Lanka as a child. It was restricted to Colombo and a few outstation places uh, in the south and in the tea country where we went uh, for school holidays and on weekends. Um, and as you said right at the beginning of our conversation, Nicholas, there was a long period, probably close to 30 years, when I only went to Sri Lanka infrequently and it wasn't really on my mind. It was far away. I had other, other concerns, other interests. Uh, but then I felt Sri Lanka calling me back, pulling me back, uh, I suppose, around 15 years ago. Uh, and then when I came back, I started to spend more time in Colombo uh, on successive visits and, above all, spend a lot of time on road trips uh, around the island, really crisscrossing the island. 
I probably did something like 40,000 to 50,000 kilometers in the car on road trips over almost 10 years. So I really got to see uh, not every nook and cranny of the island, but a lot of it, not just on the main roads and in the main cities and towns, but uh, on the back roads and in lots of back of beyond uh, places. Um, and well, just to give you at least an initial flavor of Sri Lanka's you know, stunning variety, I don't know anywhere else that is so varied, so variegated in a relatively small compact space. Um, Colombo, uh, by South Asian standards, is an easygoing, fairly livable ca capital. It's smallish. It's got a population of about 2 million, greater Colombo, that is. Uh, it's much more livable than uh, most other South Asian cities in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and elsewhere. Um, most tourists go down south to the beaches, uh, about a two-hour drive from Colombo. Uh, and the southern coastline is, uh, is very lush. Uh, um, it has wonderful beaches. Um, but if I were to describe the south and the deep south going inland, um, one comes to the heart of Sinhala Buddhist culture in the villages uh, with wonderful little temples, uh, flowers and shrubs everywhere, uh, paddy terraces, a cornucopia of fruit and vegetables growing. Um, the, the tea country, where often tourists venture, has a very different uh, scenery and also a different cultural flavor. Uh, it's higher up, the climate is cooler. Uh, uh, you see these undulating carpets of tea. That's all completely artificial scenery, of course, because the British from the 1830s uh, burnt virgin jungle in order to plant uh, first coffee and then tea, which is what has stuck. Uh, you see plantation bungalows, little uh, Anglican churches. Of course, the culture in those days under the British was dominated by British planters in the hill country. Uh, there's a strong hill country Tamil culture of Indian Tamils who came over from the uh, second half of the 19th century as indentured labor uh, who live on, on these estates. Um, there's Kandy, which is the, the hill capital and the spiritual capital of Sinhala Buddhists with the main Buddhist shrine in the country, the Temple of the Tooth. If you venture further north from the hill country in Kandy, you come to uh, what in Sinhalese is called Rajarata, translated literally as Land of Kings. And here in the north-central part of the country, which is flatter and drier, it, it, uh, it moves into the dry zone, um, uh, you find ancient capitals of Sinhala Buddhist kings that go back 2,300 years, uh, two capitals in particular, and that whole area is dotted with ancient temple sites, Buddhist temple sites, uh, 
and uh, monasteries, uh, many of them still deep, you know, smothered deep in the jungle. Uh, and then if you, if you venture east and north of the hill country and uh, the ancient capitals, you come to uh, the, the present Tamil heartland of Sri Lanka, uh, the north very much Tamil, the east a mix of Sinhalese, uh, Tamils and, uh, and, and Muslims. Uh, the landscape is different. Uh, there's much more scrub. It's harsh, bare, flat land. It's much more thinly populated. Uh, the majority language is Tamil, not Sinhalese. Uh, most of the people look different. Um, so that, 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 and I, I've only, I've only just got started, but I hope that gives you a little flavor of, of Sri Lanka's variety. And I'd like to get into maybe some of the, some of the different groups you saw on, on your travels. You know, I think, I think a lot of the discussion of, let's call it kind of ethnic relations in Sri Lanka tend to focus on the Sinhalese and the, and the Tamils because of the civil war, obviously. But you also bring up several other, I think, of the of the minority groups um, in the countries, sorry, in, in in Sri Lanka, and how they've reacted to um, this changing environment. People like um, the burghers or or the Muslim communities. Can you go into a bit more detail about some of these other groups outside of the of, of, of the Sinhalese and the and the Tamils? Sure. Well, well let, let's start with the with with the Christian community. Christians are about eight, nine percent of the population. Of course, Christianity is a result of Western colonization, Catholicism from the Portuguese, and then Anglicanism from first the Dutch and then the British. Uh, Sri Lankan Christians are mainly Catholics. Ninety percent of them are Catholics. Catholicism in Sri Lanka is very colorful, and that's very much an inheritance of from the, the Portuguese. Um, the so-called burghers uh, are descendants of, um, well, of, of the Portuguese, Brit Dutch, and British, but particularly the Dutch and the British, um, mixed with Sinhala, Tamil, and other blood. Um, uh, there aren't that many of them left in Sri Lanka now, less than 50,000, probably close to 30,000. Most have emigrated. Uh, since independence to Australia in particular. Um, uh, the Muslims, as I said, about 10% of the uh, island's population, uh, originally of probably of Arab trader descent. Uh, again, there's all kinds of blood flowing through Muslim veins, including including mine. Um uh, a lot of Tamil blood uh, in particular. Uh, the mother tongue of Muslims in Sri Lanka, particularly of those who are less well-off, uh, uh, is Tamil. Tamil being one of the great trading languages of the wider region for, for centuries. Um, uh, so that, 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 that's, that's just an initial summary that also plays into um, uh, ethnicities and uh, politics. Um, Sri Lankan Christians are both Tamils and Sinhalese, so by ethnicity. 
most Sri Lankan Christians are Sinhalese, uh, but some, a significant minority, are Tamils. Um, um, Muslims consider themselves ethnically distinct, neither Sinhalese nor Tamils, um, in terms of self-identity. Uh, Muslims have their own political parties. Um, uh, Christians were very much divided during the Civil War, uh, some taking the side of Tamil Elam, of secession and independence in the north, some indeed supporting the Tamil Tigers, uh, and uh, the majority supporting the government in Colombo and the uh, the wider Sinhala cause. Uh, so the admixture of Christians and Muslims, you know, adds to those layers of fascinating complexity I mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation. So I'd like to maybe talk now about kind of your, your process of writing the book and your feelings as you were writing the book. You know, kind of unlike other travel books, um, you are Sri Lankan. Um, you are a native of the country you are writing about. Um, except I think, as you note, you were seeing many of these places in Sri Lanka for the first time, or at least have returned to them after a long period overseas. Um, I guess, how did you kind of grapple with being simultaneously, uh, let's say, local and not local? And do you think it gave you a different perspective on on the country? Yes, uh, d- definitely. Um, I mean, I describe myself in the book as a half insider, half outsider. Um, and I think that 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 gives me a perspective on Sri Lanka that's different from, say, outsiders coming in and experiencing the place as 100% foreigners. There have been a few travel books on Sri Lanka along those lines, um, uh, not to mention books of history, politics, ethnicity, and so on. Uh, and at the same time, I'm not a full insider. I haven't spent my whole life or the bulk of my life living in uh, in Sri Lanka. Um, so in that sense, I think my perspective is a little different from those who've just been immersed in the country all or much of the, the time. Um, when I started going back to Sri Lanka, um, as I said, starting about 15 years ago, I realized that the best way to really discover or rediscover the country was to write about it. But I didn't want to write about it as an academic, which I was and still am part-time. Um, uh, I wasn't really interested in writing, if you like, a conventional history, politics, economics, or social science book about Sri Lanka. I'd always been interested in travel writing. It was one of my one of my great passions from my 20s, and wanted to write a travel book, and Sri Lanka was the obvious place to to start. So uh, that was my idea at the beginning, and I think what emerged over the course of travel and uh, a long, arduous process of writing was a travel memoir. Um, So we've talked about some of the memoir bits, my own my, my personal story background in Sri Lanka. Uh, we've talked a little bit about my travels around the island. And I wanted to put the two together uh, 
not so much to talk about the travel aspect and the the memoir aspect in exhaustive, excruciating detail, but to use them as vehicles, a memoir vehicle and a travel vehicle, to paint a, a broader picture, to put together a kind of mosaic of Sri Lanka in the round, its history, its cultures, its religions, its politics, uh, current affairs, and of course the various places uh, the regions around the island that I, that I visited. Uh, so that, that's, that's why I ended up writing a travel memoir. I'd like to kind of end our conversation on the book by, by talking about the politics of Sri Lanka a little bit. I mean, obviously, I think if, clearly if, if, if you read your book, um, I think any reader will, will quickly realize that you're not, um, I'm going to use the word disinterested in Sri Lankan politics. You have you have opinions about um, how Sri Lanka has developed both politically and economically, um, and and so I guess I, I I actually have have two questions which you can which you can answer as you wish. The first is um, how did your kind of views on politics and economics affect how you saw the country, how you saw Sri Lanka as you traveled around, and then the second part is. What has changed in Sri Lanka since you wrote the book? I know last year um, the uh, Rajapaskas returned to power in last year's elections in Sri Lanka. Um, so I guess kind of j- j- just to repeat my two questions. First, um, how does your, I guess, kind of views on politics and economics and how they should work, how did that affect your your travels around Sri Lanka? And then second, what's changed in Sri Lankan politics and economics since, since you wrote the book? Um, well, to... To, to take a stab at your first question, um, I think initially in my travels, uh, my views on Sri Lanka's politics and, and economics were perhaps more pronounced as, as a frame. Um, not only given my childhood experience, which we've talked about, uh, but also I, 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 you know, I, I, I wrote regularly in Sri Lankan newspapers about issues of the day. Uh, for three years, I was a, a policy advisor to, to the government, uh, uh, the government that lost the last elections to, uh, to the Rajapaksas. Um, so that was always there. But I, 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 I think what I felt as I, as I did more traveling as I immersed myself in the country, as I had encounters that went beyond headline politics and economics, um, I just became that much more interested in all sorts of other questions and um, other ways of looking at the island. Uh, So uh, I think those other ways became or came more to the fore um which to to put it in a nutshell um i came to see sri lanka with i suppose um with multicolored eyes um so when i when i go to sri lanka when i go back to sri lanka uh and travel around i don't i don't think politics economics immediately 
uh, I think more in terms of of scenery, of of nature, of cultures, and of course, in a country like this, which has such charged uh, politics, that that comes into the mix. But it doesn't crowd things out the way it used to when I started uh, traveling around Sri Lanka. Um, your second question about what's changed in Sri Lanka since I wrote the book. So uh, effectively in the last year and a half to, to two years. Well, uh, most uh, uh, immediately, uh, there were two elections, a presidential election in November 2019, and then a parliamentary election uh, in August last year. Uh, in which uh, the Rajapaksa family uh, came back to power uh, after being voted out of power in 2015. And it was uh, a triumphant um, restoration. Uh, And Sri Lankan politics is back to being dominated by one family uh, with Rajapaksa as president, another Rajapaksa as prime minister, a few as ministers, and the wider clan essentially ruling the country with an iron grip uh, of its politics. Um, uh, I suppose some of the things that I wrote about in the book, towards the end of the book, I, there's, there are a few pages where I, I paint three scenarios of Sri Lanka. Uh, one of them uh, is a scenario of relapse, um, and that's effectively what's come to pass. The Rajapaksas are back. Uh, Sri Lanka is back to being a kind of illiberal democracy. Um, uh, they run the country largely as they wish. Um, the rule of law is often broken. Uh, mind you, it was broken before, but I think that's more, uh, more obvious, perhaps more widespread now. Ethnic relations are more charged. They were charged even before the Rajapaksas took over, but uh, there's, I think, more of a real felt sense of Sinhala Buddhist majoritarian triumphalism. The minorities feel more beleaguered. Uh, Now it's the Muslim minority in particular, particularly in the wake of the Easter Sunday bombings uh, two years ago. Um... Foreign relations have also changed. Uh, uh, Sri Lanka's first friend is definitely China. Um, uh, That's become even more pronounced. The Rajapaksas have a very close relationship with the Chinese Communist Party state. So the Chinese influence has grown even even more powerful. Uh, And relations with India and with the West are um, uh, ambivalent, at the least Um, so that's how I would describe some of the changes Uh, it's been a politically, uh, economically it's been a depressing two years for Sri Lanka there were the Easter Sunday bombings uh, which killed tourism overnight uh, and which opened up a new crack between the Sinhalese and the Muslims Um, there's been what I've just what I've just described, and of course, very much front and center, the the pandemic, 
um, which has put Sri Lanka into a kind of uh, deep freeze um, with the economy, meaning particularly uh, poorer people uh, suffering suffering considerably. So with that, thank you for listening to an interview with Professor Razin Chali, author of Return to Sri Lanka, Travels in a Paradoxical Island. One actual final question. Um, Razin, what's next for you and where can people find your work? <laughs> um, well, um, what's uh, it's not something I've decided on um, 100%. I've definitely got more writing to do on on Sri Lanka, on on various themes. Um, uh, but before I put together another book on Sri Lanka, I suppose what I really want to do is is write a travel book on somewhere else in in Asia, uh, somewhere that doesn't have that immediate connection Sri Lanka has for me. Um, I have a vague idea of doing a, a travel book on on Southeast Asia, the whole region, but that's probably going. That's probably somewhere off yet. Um, uh, so uh, the answer is I don't know for sure, but probably a uh, travel writing um, uh, on other parts of Asia, uh, but probably not something conventionally straightforwardly academic, which is the kind of writing I, I used to do, but I think having, having got bitten by the bug of this kind of free-arrange travel writing, uh, I want to do much more of that. Well, I, I, I look forward to reading what comes next. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and listening to the Asian Review Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Amit Chowdhury, author of Finding the Raga, an improvisation on Indian music. But before then, thank you, Razin, so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas. My pleasure. <laughs>